The following audio is from a sermon series from the book of Acts. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse, thir- first, chapter 4, verse 13, following verses 23 through 31. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit? Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church, or maybe better called Sacred City Sweat Emporium. It's a little toasty in here today, so I will do my best to speak swiftly um, and get through this so we can get back to a a temperature where we're not sweating when we sit. So um, let me introduce myself. My name's Sam. I'm the pastoral resident here at Sacred City Church. I've been uh, with... Sacred City as a pastoral resident for the last year, um, and, and part of my residency is to, to determine if, if God is calling me into pastoral residency, um, and, and I feel as if um, in the last year God has affirmed that, and so this next year, the next part of my, my two-year residency, we're, we're going to test and see if God is calling me into church planning, so that's why I'm up here today, kind of uh, getting a, getting a feel of the ropes of preaching and, and all this other stuff that goes into to pastoral ministry. So um, it's my my privilege and my honor to be up here um, this morning, filling uh, in behind the pulpit for for Pastor Justin. I have a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Um, the first one uh, is that if you go back to the bookstore, um, you'll see two new books sitting on the bookstore. We're about to to um, embark in a new season on the church calendar called Advent. And this is part time of the year where we kind of take a break from our normal preaching schedule and, and the service feels a little bit different. Like we want to slow down and back down as, as culture is kind of picking up and getting in the hustle bustle. We want to, we want to slow down and remember what, what the season's really about. So to help you do that with your family, we have, we have two books for sale back there. The first one is called Jotham's Journey and it's an Advent storybook. It's really targeted for kids. I, from what I hear, it's a blast to read the kids. Kids love it. Um, and the second resource that we have for you back there, I forget what it's called, but it's a, a book by Elise Fitzpatrick. It's sitting right next to it. It's an Advent devotional for adults and kids. There's some stuff going through lighting the Advent candles and stuff. So we wanted to provide those resources to you at a, at a steeply discounted price. They're over uh, half price. Five bucks, I think, is what they're charging for them. So if you're looking to uh, find something to use with your family this, this Advent season to, to go through the calendar. Those are two resources that we highly recommend. So um, be sure to check those out. And and my second announcement is that tonight um, at at the center or the Sacred City offices, we'll be having missional community training. Um, It's open for anybody who wants to join in um, and kind of figure out how to best serve your missional community tonight. Pastor Justin's going to lead us through um, being spirit-led. So if that's something that interests you, you don't need to be a missional community leader to come. If if you just want to learn, we Come on in. Come on. So that's tonight, 6 p.m., the Sacred City offices. That's just off Brady Street, 1411 Brady Street. So um, that's it for my announcements. Let me me pray, uh, and we'll jump right in. i got a lot of ground to cover. Heavenly Father, we we come before you today just, um, just so thankful 
for what you've done. Um, as, as our songs have proclaimed, as, as the liturgy has told us and what you have done through Christ to bring us from death to life. And, and so we, we come before you today to celebrate what you have done for us, God. And we, we, we humble ourselves beneath your word um, because you said it and it's true. And so we come before you to hear how, how you call us, um, how you, what you call us to. Uh, and how you enable us to do it. Um, so we ask that, that the Spirit would be moving right now, that the Spirit would soften hearts to hear the good news, that the Spirit would be um, uh, convicting hearts to, to become better missionaries, to become better lovers of people, um, and that from this, from this Scripture we would learn more about who you are and what you've done for us and how we are to respond. So, Spirit, please be with us now uh, as we study. Your, your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Six months ago, <clears throat> I retired. I retired from my career as a substitute PE teacher. <clears throat> I, I got to experience for three months what I once thought was one of the most glorious occupations known to man. I mean, what, what other job is there where you could pelt somebody in the face with a dodgeball all day and every day? There's nothing, nothing better. So I took this opportunity. I thought it was going to be really special, and, and perhaps I just revealed to you my immaturity. But as I, as I was teaching, I learned something. Well, I guess I, I got to reobserve something, a phenomenon that's going on all across the world. You've probably experienced it at least one time in your life. This is the phenomenon of, of choosing teams, right? We know how that works. Two captains, they alternate teams, picking the best first. Now, most kids, when, when they get the, the privilege of being a, a captain, they choose, choose the best athlete first, like the fastest, the most agile, the, um, the most talented. They pick the best athlete. But occasionally... I would run across uh, a student who, who picked the best based upon a different type of criteria. The best looking, the, the best conversationalist, the best friend. These are, these are typically young ladies who viewed PE time more as a social hour than an opportunity to, to beam someone in the face with a dodgeball. But, but no matter what happened, the best always got chose first. Every time. Uh, the majority of time... <clears throat> this, this, I'm just saying every time the best would get picked first. And if you take a look at our society, things seem to run the same way. Like our culture is doing the same thing. Like um, the best applicant gets the job. The, the best looking model gets the uh, advertising gig. The, the best contractor with the best price wins the bid. Like this is going on all throughout our, our culture. This is just the way our culture works. And, and as I thought about this, I, I began to wonder, what if God did things the same way that our culture did? Like, what if God only chose the best? What if he chose only the best to be on his team? Now, I'm, I think there are three typical responses to this that, that maybe are, are represented in this, in, in this group of people right now. The first one is, is the arrogant guy who says, yeah, there's no reason why God wouldn't choose me. Like, I got a really great resume. I'm a top-notch dude. Like, there's no reason why God would not pick me. But then I think that there's also another response, which is kind of the opposite of that, which is the response of, uh, of kind of despair. Like, there's... I've done far too many bad things. I've hurt too many people. I've messed up too many times. There's no way. There's no way that God would ever use me. There's no way he would call me. There's no way he'd choose me. But the third response is, is a response that I think is, is pretty typical. This is my response. It's, it's well, I'm definitely not the best, but I'm not the worst either. Like, there's, there's worse guys down the street. Um, but, but I'm definitely not the best. So I, it doesn't make sense why God would, would choose me or use me like when there's better guys, when there's better options. And, th- and then the thought comes of, well, even if God did choose me, I wouldn't be able to do what he calls me to do. Like, there's no way I could do it. 
I think that that's the majority of us would have that response to the question. And, and I have bad news and I've got good news for you. The bad news is that you aren't the best. I'm not going to try to tell you, yeah, everybody pat on the back, you're the best. And, and you should get chose. I'm going to tell you, no, you're not the best. But the good news is that God does things differently. God does not choose the best like our culture does. God doesn't choose the best like my PE class did. God chooses common men and women, and he gives them an uncommon boldness, and then he sends them to witness to the world. And in today's passage, I want to draw your attention to to these three things. Who God calls, what God calls us to, and how this is possible. But before I I jump into the passage, I want to give you a quick bit of background on what's been going on in the book of Acts so far. We started this series, I think this is the fourth week, maybe third, fourth, yeah, something like that. Um, But but we see in Acts chapter 1, we see the resurrected Jesus. The the Jesus who was crucified, he was buried, he was in a tomb, and and God made him alive again. And we see this, this crucified, resurrected Jesus ascending into heaven. And as his, his disciples are watching him go up, he, he tells them, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have boldness to proclaim to the ends of the earth of my greatness. And so, and that day comes, the day of Pentecost is what we call it in the church calendar. Pentecost comes, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and crazy stuff starts happening. They start talking in these weird languages. People can understand them. And just like that, God converts 3,000 people. He gives 3,000 people the faith to believe in Jesus in that one quick moment. And then we see how last week we saw uh, how, how God takes these people that he gives faith and he gathers them, gathers them together. And he, there's something very unique about them. There's something very distinguished about them. How they're eating together. How they're sharing everything that they have in common. They're, they're praying together. They're, they're studying the scriptures together. And then we, we come to chapter 3, which, which we didn't really get to look at a whole lot. But, but I'm going to kind of fill you in is on what's happening. Peter and John, two of, two of Jesus' disciples, are going to the temple to tell others about Jesus. And all the way to the temple, they come across a guy who is lame, who he can't walk. He's, he's got some sort of illness, and he's asking for money. And, and Peter and John walk up to him and say, hey, hey dude, we, we don't have cash for you. But we got something way better. And they, and, he, and they say, get up and walk. And just like that, the man is healed. He gets up and people see what's going on and they're astonished. They, they're filled with amazement and wonder at what the, these guys just did. And, then, and so, so what happens is, is Peter starts preaching. And he's telling them what, what happened, like how this guy was healed. And he says, Jesus, this man who was killed a, a few weeks back... You might remember him. It was, a, it was a pretty big deal. This Jesus that was killed is the man who healed this man. And so the, the religious leaders catch wind of what's going on and, and they're annoyed. Like scripture says, these guys are annoyed with this message. And so they sent out and have John and Peter arrested. And so John and Peter are standing before these religious leaders, some of the most powerful religious leaders of the time. And what they do is, is astounding. They stand up and they start preaching hardcore. I mean, preaching hardcore. They're probably yelling, arms are flailing, spit is flying. Like they're holding nothing back. And these guys are standing before the men who are responsible for having Jesus killed. And they're standing there and they're preaching Jesus boldly. This is nuts. And so... <clears throat> What happens in response to this, the religious leaders, we see the response in, in verse 13 of, of chapter 4. They say, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These religious leaders noticed something very unique about these men. First scripture says that they notice the boldness of these disciples. The fact that they can stand there and just preach the gospel to them. But then they realize that they're uneducated common men who are standing before them. And that's exactly who these guys were. John and Peter were common uneducated men. 
And if you look back in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, you'll see that these two men are former fishermen. They were not seminary graduates. They were not social elites. They didn't have a lot of influence. They weren't rich. They aren't brainiacs. They're just normal blue-collar dudes who Jesus called to be his disciple. In fact, if you look at all 12 of the disciples, you'll see that the men that Jesus called to himself weren't anything special either. They're normal, everyday guys. They're definitely not superstars. They aren't heroes. They are sinful men who Jesus would make into his disciples. And the thing that I love about scripture is that scripture is brutally honest about these guys. They, they don't try to, to put them up on a pedestal as if they're something they're not. Scripture shows us on multiple occasions how foolish these guys are. In one scenario, we see them arguing about who the greatest of Jesus' disciples is. Like, that doesn't sound very humble. In another scenario, we see them um, where, where Jesus actually calls them fools. Like he says, you foolish ones, don't you understand? Like they're, not, they're not smart guys. In another scenario, we see, we see they're, they're on a boat in the midst of a storm and they're scared out of their shorts. Like these guys aren't brave guys. They're just common dudes. They're, they're your normal guy with, with weaknesses and flaws. Listen to what Dr. Robert Coleman says about these disciples. He says, at first, these men, they do not impress us as being key men. None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men, probably having no professional training beyond the rudiments rudiments of knowledge necessary for their vocation. They had no academic degrees in the arts or philosophies of their day. By any standard of sophisticated culture then and now, they would surely be considered a rather ragged collection of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had all the prejudices of their environment. And he goes on to say, in short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented the average cross-section of society in their day. Not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. He's right. If you were to, if you were to evaluate these men that Jesus chose to be his disciples, these are the men who would be the pioneers of the Christian church, you would wonder what in the world Jesus was thinking. Why is he choosing unlikely, underqualified candidates? Why would Jesus choose men who belonged on the junior varsity team to be the starting lineup of the World Series game? It just doesn't make sense to us. But this isn't the first time that God uses unlikely candidates. Look back to Abraham. Before God called Abraham, Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan man. And from Abraham, God used him to birth forth the nation of Israel, who God would use to show the world what it looked like to walk with God. Think of, of Moses. Moses was a man with a stutter. He was scared to stand in front of people and talk. But God used him to rally the people of Israel together and lead them out of Egyptian slavery. Think about David. The small shepherd boy, God used him and a handful of pebbles to defeat Goliath and deliver his people from persecution. Every story in the Bible involves a human, excuse me, every Bible, every story in the Bible that involves a human, involves a human who is underqualified to be used by God. But they get used In spite of their flaws and weaknesses. God did it back then. And God is doing it right now. Today God is choosing unlikely. Underqualified men and women. To show the world what it looks like. To walk with God. Look around the room right now. You and those around you. Are the ones that God is calling to himself. School teachers, car salesmen, business managers, cashiers, students, janitors, truck drivers, musicians, accountants. God is calling common, ordinary, everyday men and women to himself. People who have weaknesses, 
people who have flaws, people with anger, lust, greed, self-centered issues. God is calling unlikely and underqualified people to himself, and he is using these imperfect people. But why? Why would God use imperfect people? Why would he choose someone who's not the best? He does this so he gets the glory and not man. When I was in college studying jazz and classical trombone, I came to the point in my uh, musical career where I thought I needed to buy a new trombone in order to sound better. I, I kind of hit a wall. And so I was like, well, to get to the next level, I need to get a new horn. Because what happens when you buy a, a, a nice horn, like a really nice horn, the nice horn makes anything sound good. Like anybody who can make their lips buzz sounds great on a $10,000 horn. Like anybody. <clears throat> and, and what happens when, when a mediocre musician gets a, a, a great horn to play on is, is the horn gets the credit. Like you play on a, a $10,000 horn. People say, man, that horn, that horn makes you sound really good. Like the musician doesn't get any credit. But the thing is, so anybody can sound good on a, on a poorly made or on a greatly made horn. But, but it's only the great musicians who sound good on a poorly made horn. Like it, it's the phenomenal musicians who pick up a $100 horn and make a $100 horn sound like a $10,000 horn. And when that happens, the musician gets the credit. People don't say, hey, the horn makes you sound good. People say, man, you make, you make that horn sound good. They know that, that the credit is due to the musician. This is precisely what God is doing when he uses broken people as his instruments. When he uses broken people, it isn't the people who get the credit for being great. It's God who gets the credit for being great. Acts 4.13 shows us that God is choosing common men and, 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 um, common, common men and common women. And the next question I want to pose is, uh, what is God calling these common men and common women to? Many religions in the world, including our nation's most um, popular religion, the religion of morality, call you to do something in order to get accepted. Be a good person, read the right books, go the right places, wear the right things, listen to the right music, and then you'll be accepted. All religions call us to do something first. Clean up your acts, get your priorities straight. Just, just do something different and you'll be on your way. But Christianity is completely different. When God chooses us, it isn't so that he has a new work, work mule or, or someone to carry out his to-do list. God calls us so he can have a new member of his heavenly family. Before God calls us to do something, God calls us to be something. How does God do this? How does God call us to, to be something before he calls us to do something? God does this through the gospel. We have already established that we all have our own flaws and weaknesses. And the Bible calls these flaws and weaknesses sins. And our sin separates us from God. In fact, the Bible tells us that before God calls us to be his children, we're already children of wrath. Children who deserve wrath. But by the substitutionary death of Christ, we are made right with God. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live, and it is credited to us. And then he died the death that we deserved in order to pay for our sin. Jesus took our place as a child of wrath. He experienced the wrath we deserve so that we could know the love of the Father. This is amazing. That God would look at a sinful humanity and in spite of our sin, he would offer up his only son. There's no greater assurance in knowing that you have a heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you, who cherishes you 
unconditionally. No matter how bad you mess up, no matter how terrible you might seem, no matter how unqualified you are, no matter how imperfect, God makes us imperfect people, recipients of his perfect grace. And he gives it freely. He says to us, I don't, I don't love you because of what you do. God says, I love you because I love you. These disciples that we see in, in Acts 4 aren't doing what they're doing because God has given them a big to-do list and they have an obligation to fill it. No, they're, they're doing what they're doing because they have been made children of God and they have received the unconditional love of the Father. Peter, the, the guy who's preaching here, he was the same guy that on the night of Jesus' murder denied him three times. Like, if anybody knows what it's like to fail Jesus, Peter did. He messed up big time. But in the midst of his failure and shortcomings, God showed him forgiveness and grace. Peter and the disciples are so moved by the gospel that there is no way that the religious leaders can stifle them from proclaiming the gospel. They, they say in response to, to the religious people who tell them to stop, they say, there is no way. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and of what we have heard. They have been deeply affected by the gospel. And now from, from what they've experienced from the love of the Father, their, the, from their being, now comes their doing. Pastor Justin is a passionate Alabama fan. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. You'll hear that slipped into uh, pretty much every, every sermon he has during the football season. Um, he's, and I mean, he's a really passionate football fan. He's got the, the shirt, the gear, the hat. He's got stickers, the whole nine yards. Really passionate about Alabama football. But a crazy thing happens. As he spends time with his kids, his kids become passionate about Alabama football too. Like Javin will start wearing the shirts. Javin will wear the hat. He'll only use Alabama when he's playing uh, his, his video games. Like Javin sees his dad getting passionate about Alabama football. And he gets passionate about Alabama football. And the more that, that Javin sees his dad passionate about something, the more Javin becomes passionate about it too. This is precisely what happens when we spend time with our Heavenly Father. Since, since the beginning of time, God has been passionate about making himself known to the world. We, as his children, see how God has done this, how he has made himself known through the gospel. And in seeing God's passion for being made known, a desire is developed and cultivated in us to witness to the world and to share what we know about God with the world. So we are called into God's family... And as we're in, in God's family, we get passionate about what God is passionate. And then we get called to live as if we are passionate about it too. God doesn't just let us be spectators about the things that he's passionate about. He calls us to be participants in what he is passionate about. He is passionate about reconciling the world to himself. And so we get to be people who are actively involved in reconciling the world back to God. We get to join in God's mission, which Jesus says in Acts 1.8, is to, to be his witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. We get to participate in, in, in making God known to the world. This is exactly what's going on with the apostles here. This is exactly what they're doing. They're witnessing to those around them. And, and later on in the book of Acts, we'll see how they get sent out to, to, the, to speak the good news to the rest of the earth. But, but there's something that I, I want us to learn from the apostles today. It's, it's, it's how they are witnessing The first thing we'll see is, first, it's it's very clear that that they're witnessing boldly. They're they're speaking about Jesus very boldly. And the second thing I want to draw your attention to is that they're witnessing contextually. 
Scripture is clear that there's a lot of boldness going on right here. Peter and John are standing before the men who are responsible for having Jesus killed. The men that, that could have them killed too if they don't like what they're saying. And they're preaching. And, and they're, not, they're not holding anything back. And, and in a minute we'll get to see where this boldness comes from. But look, this, this boldness is unreal. Like there's no way that man could, could cultivate this type of boldness. I mean, I, I get nervous standing up here talking in front of you guys who, who I know love me, let alone standing in front of people who could have me killed if they don't like what I'm saying. Like these guys are bold. And as they're speaking boldly, they're also witnessing contextually. Let me show you what I mean. Look in chapter 3. You don't have to look, but, but in chapter 3, you'll see that, that Peter and John meet a man who has a physical need. They walk up to him, they heal his le- legs, and then they start preaching to him. And they're not, they're not sugarcoating anything to, to this guy either. They're as honest with this man as they are with the Pharisees. They, they say, hey man, you are sinful and you're wicked. And you need a savior. But, but the way they describe Jesus as their Savior is so appealing to them. Peter and John talk about Jesus as a man who can heal. Like, that's pretty appealing if you're a dude that needs an illness healed, right? They're, they start talking, Peter and John start talking about being refreshed in the presence of the Lord. And that sounds, sounds really appealing for guys who are actually on the outside of the temple, who aren't allowed to come into the temple because they're sick. And, and on top of it all, Peter and John use, use language of restoration. Like, these men are longing to be restored physically. Like, they've got physical ailments that they want to be, be healed. But there's also a social platform of this, that, that they're divided from the culture. Like they're viewed as outcasts and they're longing to be restored to culture and society. But beneath all of it is desire to be restored to God. And so they preach Jesus as the one who can heal, as the one who can bring refreshing, as the one who can bring restoration. And this is really appealing to these guys. And in Acts 4, they do it again. It looks a little bit different because they're talking to a different type of people. As they're talking to the religious leaders, these guys, they know that they're hard-hearted. That, that, they, that they are opposed to Jesus. But they speak, the, the, the disciples speak in a way that, that these religious leaders can understand. In verse 11, they say, this Jesus, they're quoting scripture here from Psalm 18, 118. They say, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Man, that would, that would set off a red flag right there for those guys. Those religious leaders would know, man, these guys are, these guys are quoting scripture right now. And so Peter is saying, what he's saying to them is said in a way which they can understand it. And, and in the Quad Cities, there are all kinds of people who are caught up in this rat race of having the biggest house, the nicest car, the latest designer clothes. Their, their desires are to have the riches that this world has to offer. But no matter how much stuff they get, no matter how nice it is, no matter, no matter what it is, they're never content. Like they're always out for the next thing. They never have enough to make them happy. And so what, as, as we listen, as we hear what they're saying, as, as we listen to the stories that they're telling us, we can hear that they're longing for something far greater than the riches of the world. They're longing for the riches that God has to offer us. They're longing to know that God's love is more precious than gold and silver. Another story that we hear a lot in the Quad Cities is this, this story of um, people looking and longing for that special someone. They're going to the bars, going to clubs, looking for someone to make them feel valued and accepted. They want someone to cherish them. And what happens is when they, when they don't find that fulfillment, when they don't feel like they're cherished, 
There's a cycle that goes on here. A cycle of boyfriend after boyfriend, girlfriend after girlfriend, hookup after hookup. But deep under that longing for, for that special someone is a longing to know the love of the Father. A desire to know how much God loves them, how much God cherishes them, how, how special they are to their Heavenly Father. These are just a, common, a couple of common desires from our culture here in the Quad Cities. But we must be listening. We, as disciples of Jesus, must be listening for their deepest longings. In order to witness contextually, we must be good listeners. For those who are hurting and suffering, you have to find out what their deepest longings are for. And how Jesus can fulfill those desires. For those who are religious and hard-hearted, we have to be able to listen and hear for the ways in which that they're failing their own standards. And point them to one who, is, who perfectly fulfilled all of the standards. We have to be able to listen for the lies that not yet believers are believing and listen for the moralistic mumbo-jumbo that religious people are believing that is counted to them as a righteousness. We must be good listeners of the culture that surrounds us. Witnessing contextually requires us to be good good listeners to people, but it also requires us to be even better listeners to the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to what the Spirit tells us about how Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of the people in our culture. And when the Spirit speaks, when, it, when the Spirit says something to us, we need to be able to respond in faith and boldly say what the Spirit's calling us to say or boldly do what the Spirit's calling us to do. We need to stand on the truth of the gospel that God has given to us. This is what the apostles did. They were following the Spirit. They were listening to the Holy Spirit and they were doing what the Holy Spirit told them to do. To be effective in our witnessing, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit above all things. Above our own intuitions or conclusions. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit above our our comforts that tell us to ignore what someone just said to avoid an awkward conversation. Or our selfish desires to avoid relationships with frustrating people. Or to avoid taking the time out of our busy schedule to invest in others. We must listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Let me ask you. Are you witnessing? Are you, are you listening to the culture? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Are you passionate about what our Father is passionate about? Are you being contextual as you witness? Are you speaking to your friends, family, neighbors, people who need to hear the gospel? Are you speaking to them boldly? Are you speaking to them in a way that doesn't beat around the bush? Are you telling them that they're in need of a Savior? If you're, if you're anything like me, you fail at this daily. And there are, there are thousands of reasons why. We aren't always passionate about what the Father is passionate about. And, and when we are, it's usually when it's convenient for us. So convenience. It's just not convenient to listen or to follow. We don't speak boldly because we're afraid of what others might think of us. Or you might feel that you, have, you never have anything good to say. You might feel that it's easier to be timid and avoid situations that call you to proclaim the good news of the gospel because you don't have the right personality. Because you're not, you're, because you're not an extrovert. You're, another reason, your personal mission of, of seeking comfort conflicts with God's mission of making himself known. But this is, this is the big one for me. When I, when I face opposition, when, I, when things don't go my way, when, when I run into a brick wall, when I, when I catch a snag, 
we, we become paralyzed. We, we, we think, well, that's it. Like, I tried, I'm done. We, we stop trying to witness. There are thousands of reasons why we fail at this. God has called us into his family so that we can witness to the world about how great he is. This is a huge task. It's daunting. Not only is this task huge, but the way we're supposed to do it is impossible for us to do. To be good listeners all the time, to contextualize all the time, to preach boldly all the time. I don't, I don't know about you, but I can't do that on my own. There's no way that you or I can muster up the desire in us to witness to the ends of the earth forever. There's no way we can do that on our own. There's no way I'm smart enough to listen and to discern what people are longing for. I'm not smart enough. There's no way that I could stand in front of my neighbors or my friends and boldly preach to them on my own. There's no way I could do it. We can't muster up the desire to do these things. And the reality is that no one in the world, no one in the world is capable of living up to the call that God places on us once we have become his children. We simply cannot do it in our own power. We aren't bold enough. We aren't smart enough. We don't listen well enough. We just aren't the best for the job. In fact, as we the more we understand the gospel, the more we realize that we are the worst. We aren't the best. We aren't mediocre, but we're the worst. That we were enemies of God. We were on the opposing team of God. Tim Keller says that, that the gospel shows me that I am worse than I ever thought. You've probably heard this a lot before. The gospel shows me that I'm worse than I ever thought. But at the same time, it shows me that I, I'm more loved than I had ever dared to imagine. We are the worst. We are the worst. We are sinners. We are the worst. We are, we are deserving of nothing but God's punishment and wrath. But there was one who was the best. There was one man who was the best. He, Jesus perfectly did everything that the father required. He was always bold with his words. He always knew what to say. And he always shared a deep passion for the things that our father was passionate about. Jesus lived the perfect missionary life that we could not live that he died for the mistakes that we would make and, the, and he died for the things that we would let, leave undone. Jesus not only saves us into God's family, but he shows us what the perfect missionary looks like, what it looks like to follow God, to walk with God. But not only did it show us what a perfect missionary looked like, but when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to give us the ability and the power to do these things. The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit, and now the Spirit resides in us and sends us to the world. Brothers and sisters, the, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. And the Spirit gives us everything we need to live a life of, of godliness. To live a life of witnessing to the ends of the earth. We are fully equipped by the Holy Spirit as missionaries. As men and women who are to live life as witnesses to what Jesus has done. And the only way for us to live this way, to live the way that God has called us to live, is to live a life dependent on. Upon the Holy Spirit. 
This is how the apostles are doing it. This is how, how Peter and John are healing people. This is where their boldness comes from. This is where their intelligence comes from. This is where their power comes from. These timid men, these men who were once fishermen, are now able to do great signs and wonders because they are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 4, verses 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, It is the Holy Spirit that is giving Peter the boldness to stand in front of these guys and tell them about Jesus. Doing what the Spirit prompted them to do, healing people, preaching the gospel, making disciples. This, this work wasn't all rainbows and daisies. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. The apostles faced a lot of opposition and persecution from people who, who were hostile towards God, people who didn't want anything to do with God, and people who were just indifferent. And, and if you read further on into Acts, you'll see that the majority of these men, the, the majority of the disciples, will go on to be killed because of the way that they're following the Holy Spirit. So verse 18, the apostles meet their first opposition from religious, the religious leaders. They tell them to stop preaching about Jesus. But look at how the apostles respond to this, this brick wall that they've run into. They go to God in prayer, and in verse 23, they say, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to you, your servants, to continue to speak your word with boldness. To continue to speak your word with boldness. While you, God, you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Going to God in prayer indicates that these disciples are aware that they are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to keep doing what they're doing. They can't do it on the own, on their own. They don't have the ability to keep healing people and to, to keep standing up in front of people and, and boldly preaching. They look to God for provisions to continue on the work that God has called them to. And look what happens next. This is, to me, this is the most exciting part of this passage. They go to God in prayer, and look what happens. In verse 20-something, uh, 31, I think it is. And when they had prayed, the place in which that they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayers. God gave them what they needed to continue what God had called them into. When we have hit a wall, when we feel like we're drained, when we feel like we're doing things on our own strength and not the Holy Spirit, we must go to God and ask him for the Holy Spirit to fill us once again. We must ask him to give us what we need to live the life that he has called us to live. And when we go to God and ask, we need to wait expectantly, knowing that God will answer this prayer. This is a good petition. This is, this is what God called us to. God doesn't withhold good things from us. He will give us what we need to live the life that he has called us to. The further you read into the book of Acts, you see a bunch of common men who had an uncommon boldness that were used to carry on God's mission. And in the rest of Acts, there are some epic stories about dudes preaching the gospel. Some even preaching the gospel as their last words before they're killed. And if you look back to the Old Testament, there are all kinds of awesome stories about God using normal guys to do incredible things. Moses, Gideon, David. And even in recent history, there are lots of really amazing stories of men and women 
going to places, going to countries that are hostile towards the gospel. Not only are they hostile towards the gospel, but they're hostile towards outsiders where they go and they preach the gospel and then they get killed. Epic stories of people following the Holy Spirit. It is true that God does use common men and common women to do epic things, but God also uses common men and common women to do common things with an uncommon boldness. Like God equips us to do the small things that make a a big difference. God uses us, uses our relationships, uses to the, the people that we are witnessing to. He uses us to bring them to faith. He uses us to help bring them from death to life. That itself is epic. Have you ever seen a death thing come to life? Have you ever done that? I doubt it. Maybe a plant or something. You thought it was dead, but it really is not dead. But, you know, you water it and it comes back to life. But you haven't brought a dead thing back to life. But God lets us participate in bringing dead things to life as we witness boldly to those who need to hear the message of our Savior. I want to leave you with a story that is far from epic. I'm not, I'm not telling the story so you think I'm a saint or so you think that I have things figured out because that's not the case. I want to tell you the story so that you would be encouraged and to show you that, that the Spirit is calling us to do things that seem small, but He gives us an uncommon boldness to do them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, right around Halloween time, my wife and I were thinking of ways in which that we could bless our apartment complex. We live in an apartment complex, um, and apartments are kind of weird because you literally live like eight feet away from your neighbors, but you hardly ever see them. So we were praying about ways in which that we could interact with them and, and bless them, and we came up with this idea to, to put together a a gift basket type of thing. You know, we threw a bunch of candy, some popcorn, um, carameled apples, gave them a gift card. And, and putting this stuff together was awesome. Like, wow, I feel like God's given us a, a plan. Like, this is a great window of opportunity. Like, I can't wait. And so we're putting the, the gift basket together. And then it comes time to go knock on the door. And I am, I'm so nervous. Like, I'm like, I don't want to do this. We get down to the, we get to the door and I tell my wife, she's there with me. I tell, Hey baby, you've got to do the talking. (laughs) You do the talking. I'm I'm too nervous. And so we knock on the door. (laughs) Well, guess we're not home. Looks like I get some candy for myself. And, you know, so I started thinking of reasons why I should not do what, what we have been planning to do. Like, you know, it's that wall that I was telling you about. I hit the wall and I get discouraged. I become, become kind of paralyzed. And so we went back to a par- our apartment. And, and we, you know, a couple of days later, I, I kind of felt this wrench in my gut. Like the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to use you for something here. Like, I'm... It may seem silly, like putting together a gift basket, knocking on a door and talking to your neighbors, but I'm trying to use you here. And so, as I, well, I don't know if it's my babe or my babe, my, my wife, my babe. <clears throat> I don't know if it's my, my wife or I who said, hey, we, we need to actually do this. Like we need to go and, and finish it. So we go to the door and, but this time before we go to the door, I pray, I pray. Because I'm still nervous. Like, I'm, I still got the, the butterflies going on in my stomach. And so I pray. I'm like, God, I know. I know that you're trying to do something through me now. And it's really uncomfortable. I dislike it a lot. I, I'm not. This isn't my thing. But after praying for it, I felt like. I'm not going to say like I felt someone literally push me across the hall, but there was like this, this sort of, um, feeling that I couldn't do anything but go across the hall. Like, I feel like, like this is what I have to do. So we go across the hall, we knock on the door and we end up giving them this gift basket and have a nice little conversation with them. Like just a little chit chat. It was by the Holy spirit 
that I, my wife and I, went across the hall and talked with our neighbors. Not only did the Spirit give me the power and the motivation to do this, but there was also a deep joy in walking with the Spirit in that experience, in doing what the Spirit had had called me to do, what the Spirit had told me to do. Look, I didn't, I didn't preach the gospel to the guys at the door. I didn't, I didn't lay into them. I didn't tell them that they needed to be saved. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would continue to push me out of my comfort zone to get to know these guys. And I'm praying for the day to come where I would know the context in which I could present to them the gospel which I could show them that Jesus is more appealing than whatever else that they're chasing after. And I know that the same spirit that moved me to knock on the door is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And it'll be the same spirit that will be there to give me the words to say and the boldness to say it. Church, I am praying, is my my heart's prayer, that God would give us a common men and women an uncommon boldness to witness to the Quad Cities. That he would use us in great ways to tell our cities about how great Jesus is, how great our Savior is. That we could be good listeners who are able to hear the d- deepest desires of our culture, the deepest desires of our friends and neighbors, and then to boldly speak in to what they desire and tell them that Jesus is the one who will satisfy. I am praying that we would be overwhelmed by the grace that God has poured out onto us and that we would get passionate about the things that our Father is passionate about. I'm praying that we would follow the Holy Spirit as he descends upon us. I'm praying that we would be, I'm praying that we would be the kind of people that, that talked and live in a way where when people interact with us, they, they know that we have been with Jesus. Father God, we thank you God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in making us common men and women, people who don't have anything to offer you, making us your children. And I thank you, God, that that in making us your children, you have given us the capacity to be passionate about the things that you are passionate about. That you have given us a desire to witness to the ends of the earth, to, to start here in the Quad Cities, to start here in Davenport and Bettendorf and Moline and Rock Island, and to witness to the cities and spread out, that we would be pushed out so the world would know how great you are. God, and, and, and we, we, we know that we are um, incapable people. We aren't capable of doing these things on our own. We aren't, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the, 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 the brains. We don't have the, the boldness. We don't have the intellect to do what you have called us to do. We don't have the skills to do what you have called us to do, but you have equipped us with all good things in the Holy Spirit. And so father right now, like the apostles did, we want to ask for boldness to keep doing what you have called us to do. Lord God, that you, would make, that you would shake this place, that you would shake these people, that we would have a, a deep sense of, of, of your love for us, God, and, and knowing that, that you have made us your children, that you've made us your people, that from our being would come forth doing. God, we, we ask this for your glory, that you would that you would receive all glory and honor from this, not, not from us men, that, not that we would get the glory for being an awesome church, but so, God, that you would get the glory for using imperfect people to carry out your perfect mission. God, and we ask this for the good of our city. God, so that many would come to know how splendid you are. 
that many would come to know how great your love is for us. Father God, give us your spirit. Fill us with this boldness. Give us these good things that we ask for. We ask for these things, not, not, not on our own, but we ask for these things through, through the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. God, be gracious to us. Give us a heart to reach the lost. Give us a, a heart to witness in a way that brings you much glory and that much fruit comes forth. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.